0: Before I read, I want to thank you for your faithful prayers and concern for my family. And I want to thank the elders, Particular, thank you, Todd. I see Todd this morning, but thank you, Todd, for stepping in kind of last minute to preach last week. What a gift and blessing that was uh, for me, and I know for you as well. So Isaiah chapter 58, let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word Thank you for preserving it for us, that we might have it this day. It's been read in a language that we understand, but yet we confess and cry out to you that we need more than physical hearing and physical understanding. We need spiritual help. We need eyes to see and ears to hear. We need you, oh God, to work in our hearts by your spirit, that you would teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us. For righteousness' sake, would you make us more like Jesus? Would you help us, O oh God, help your people, help me? May we be attentive to your word, responsive to your word, hopeful in your word. Oh God, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A young man walked into a military recruitment center and declared to the officer on duty, I want to join. Sign me up. Good, the officer replied, good. But first tell me why. Why do you want to be a soldier? Well, sir, I'm devoted. To my country. I'm disciplined and I'm a hard worker. Impressed with his answer, the officer invited the young man to sit down and start filling out some paperwork. After a few minutes, the, the young man spoke up, said, sir, before I continue on, I want to let you know I do have one condition. What is that? The officer asked. The young man said, I will not fight. I'll train to fight, but I won't fight. I'll wear the uniform, but I won't get it dirty. I'll march in the parades, but I will not march off to war. I'll absolutely obey my commanding officers in everything until and except when they tell me that I have to go to combat. Sir, I'm willing to sacrifice everything for my country everything but my life. Stunned, the officer had a response. Son, that is not how this works. You don't get to sit your own terms. You aren't allowed to develop your own standards of devotion, standards of discipline, and standards of hard work. And you simply cannot define the limits of your sacrifice. It just doesn't work that way. He concluded by saying this, if it's a uniform you seek, if it's self-glory that you seek, if you want to win the war without losing a thing, I suggest you go somewhere else, anywhere else but here. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? As absurd as this young man's demands may sound to our ears, they're not altogether unfamiliar to many of those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. For many delight in the promised blessings of salvation. Many readily sign themselves over to the service of their king, and many train hard their minds and their hearts to think and to worship rightly, yet they do so. On their own terms. They do so according to their own standards, and they do so in their own measure. But God's resounding word to such persons, a word that thunders like a cannon blast and sends its echoes out through every page of Scripture, God's word reminds us that we don't get to set our own terms. It just doesn't work that way. That's why we're taking these early weeks of January to reorient ourselves to our purpose and to our call to be those who engage not only with God in our personal and corporate worship, but those who also engage the world in which we live. Last week, Todd did a good job reminding us of our call to share, to share our lives and to share the gospel with others, which is fundamental to our mission here at the Granville Chapel Now this week, we turn to Isaiah 58 and we consider our call to serve. Last week, the call to share. This week, the call to serve. To serve others. To serve others as a response to how you and I have been served. A response to how we've been served by our great Savior and King, our Commander, Jesus Christ. So speaking by the prophet Isaiah, God minces no words. He gets right to the point to point out the blatant hypocrisy of his people. If you're taking notes, and I know many of you like to, this is our first of three points this morning, blatant hypocrisy. Verse one begins with God calling out the sins of his people instead of a still small voice that pricks the conscience and massages the heart, what we're used to. Hopefully you're used to that. God instead here places the megaphone in Isaiah's hands and tells him to quote, you can see it there, cry aloud and do not hold back. Cry aloud and do not hold back. In other words, shout it from the rooftops. Confront my people with their sin. Confront them. But what's their sin? And what is God confronting them? On the surface, we can see that it is certainly not a lack of religious devotion. Verse 2 tells us that the people are seeking God daily. It goes on to say that they're delighting to know his ways. Not begrudgingly, but they're delighting to know his ways. They're asking God to met out judgments, righteous judgments. And lastly, it says they are finding joy, delighting, and drawing near to him, Evidently, the temple is full. It's full of fervent worshipers. And homes across the land are filled with praise and devotion. We might say that this is a picture of model believers. You know, if you were looking for a church, and some of you are, if you were looking for a church and you came across one that could be described this way, these people seek God daily. Right? They delight to know his ways. Delight to study his word. They constantly cry out to him to judge wickedness. They find joy in drawing near to him. You'd want to be a part of that church, wouldn't you? That sounds like a place you want to be. Because isn't this what God desires? Isn't this the kind of place that we should look for? Of course. Of course, this is what God desires. But the reality is that what you see is not always what you get. What you think is happening on the surface is just a facade. See, it's completely possible for a church to do all these good things, these right things, with no awareness, no heart, (laughs) no awareness that to God something is deeply wrong. There's something stirring under the surface. You can see this kind of blindness in the questions that were posed in verse 3. You get this glimpse of the heart of the people. Even though they're doing all these things, they're asking, why have we fasted and you don't see us, God? We have humbled. In the Hebrew, it's literally afflicted. Why have we afflicted ourselves and you don't take any knowledge of it? They see themselves as drawing near to God. Everyone else sees them as drawing near to God. But even as they draw near, they just perceive that he's standing far off so they're bitter they're angry they think God's being unfair they're doing all these things and he's not responding and so they're just backing the dump truck up and pouring out all their frustrations on him if you study the book of Isaiah you can see that the big indictment here is that they're trying to leverage God for their own purposes we do this God does that. They define that. We do this. God does that. They're doing all the right things. And this is the heart of their blatant hypocrisy. A piece of food may be appealing to the eye, but it might very well be full of poison. In the second half of verse three, on through verse five, you can see this poison in the hearts of the people for what appears to be a deprivation of pleasure, their fasting is actually an indulgence in sin. It's whitewashing a tomb. They're role-playing righteousness. They're washing the outside of the cup while leaving the inside filthy. Can they put on the clothes of mourning yet continue on? And what's described here as their oppression They're quarreling, they're fighting, they're gossip. Can they do that? Can they put on this mourning for sin, but yet continue on in their sin? Can they dress themselves up for God, but in the end only do it for the sake of themselves and their own self-righteousness? Apparently they think they can do that. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Did not Jesus warn us of this? You can turn there with me if you want. Just a few verses over in Matthew chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching about fasting and teaching about these religious devotion. Matthew chapter six, 16 through 18, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Blatant hypocrisy. None of us are guilty of that, are we? It's entitlement. None of us are guilty of that, are we? I am, thinking that outward devotion covers inward corruption or that outward devotion outweighs or even uh, masks public neglect of our faith, thinking that we can leverage God's goodness and favor with our dutiful religious obligation is like putting on a uniform, calling yourself a soldier and yet being totally unwilling to sacrifice your life When called upon to do so, it's blatant hypocrisy. But God has a word, He has a remedy for such blatant hypocrisy. And it comes in the form of a call, a call to sacrifice. And that's our second point this morning, if you're taking notes. Sacrificial calling. One was blatant hypocrisy, two is sacrificial calling. We see this calling most forcefully in verses six and seven. Would you look there with me again? Isaiah 58, verses six and seven. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own Flesh. Reminds us a lot of Jesus' sermon, one of his first sermons, right? Today you've heard this scripture, Isaiah, fulfilled in your hearing. He has come to set the captives free to break the yoke. This is consistent with all of Scripture and Scripture's call. This call right here. And in fact, this call could be broken into four subcalls, distinctive calls. You see them first, set the captives free. Freedom language is clear here. Sit the captives free. Second, feed the hungry. Feed the hungry. Third, give shelter to the homeless. Give shelter to the homeless. And fourth, provide clothing for those without, for the naked. Provide clothing. This is the fast that God has chosen. This is a call, it's a sacrificial call for God's people to empty ourselves so that others can be made full. It's a call to lay aside our earthly strength in order that we might fight with spiritual might so that others can be set free from all forms of bondage, whether it be physical bondage or spiritual bondage. And it's a call to not just keep the pantry door closed so that we can deprive ourselves and our various fasts But it's a call to swing open wide the door so that while we withhold, we can give so that we can invite the hungry to come in and eat so that they may have food, food that we so readily and easily stockpile in our homes. It's a call to do more than provide a haven for our own religious rituals. Think about the Old Testament practice, which would have been in the mind here, of building booths that they would dwell in during various feasts and festivals. It's a call to do more than provide that haven for your religious rituals. but It's a call to provide shelter for those who have no home, to even bring them into your very own home. So that you might be able to share your shelter with them. And it's a call to do more than exchange our clothes for sackcloth and ashes, but to take the clothes we had on before we did that and give them to the one who has none. The text is clear this is the fast that God has chosen empty ourselves so that others can be made full, serve others. As you serve God, it's important I say that because I want to urge you not to create a false dichotomy here. It's easy for us to think that our spiritual lives are able to be compartmentalized into serving God on the one hand and serving others on the other. But the message here in Isaiah 58 is that those two things go hand in hand. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourselves. Or maybe it's like that old Frank Sinatra song, love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse in carriage. I tell you this, my brother, you can't have one without the other. I know you wanted me to sing. Still can't sing yet. You know, that's the same point that Jesus made throughout his entire ministry. Repeatedly, he called upon those of us who follow him to go above and beyond our love for and service to others. You simply cannot read the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament and not take that home. The call is unmistakable and it's undeniable. And it's not a moralistic call to just do more and to do better. It's a call to embrace who you are in Christ, being made more and more into the image of Christ. Because when you do that, when you love him and love others, you're not just doing it for him, you're doing it to him. Do you believe that? I mean, don't just hear me. You can turn there if you want. Matthew 25 In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about the last day, and he says, on the last day, I'll put everyone before me, and I'll divide the sheep and the goats. And we talked a lot about that when we went through Revelation, didn't we? The message here is, is that Jesus begins to talk to them about what they did. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was without shelter, and you gave me shelter. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the sheep are gonna go, what, when? When? When did I do that? I don't remember going to see you. And he says, ah, as often as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Make that connection. We serve God by serving others. They're coupled together. They go together like a horse in carriage. See, God's remedy for the blatant hypocrisy of his people was for them to hear and to heed his sacrificial call, the call to empty themselves so that others could be made full. It's not a call to disregard religious devotion altogether. It's not saying that prayer and fasting and Bible study and seeking and duty are meaningless. No, don't hear that because that's not the message either. It's a call to couple religious devotion with sacrificial service so that our religion, our faith can truly be true and undefiled before God. It's a call to be compelled by the love that Jesus has for us so that in turn, we can sacrifice ourselves so that others may come to experience that same love as well. It's a sacrificial call to serve, to take up our cross. And to follow him. And this call to sacrificial service comes with, in this text, some very dramatic and very gracious promises. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. Gracious promises. In verses 8 through 12, I see seven. Seven clear and gracious promises from God, which will accompany us when we answer his call. We're going to go through them very briefly I know I tricked you three points with 7 subpoints on the third point. It's a lot of points. But I have to draw your attention to these. Sermon series for the future, I'm sure. But let's just go through them quickly. First, we see that darkness will become light. Look at verse eight. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Look at verse 10. Then shall your light arise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You see, just as we heard in our call to worship this morning, God will transform our morning into dancing. He will clothe us with gladness that we may in turn radiate his glory. We may shine the light of Jesus to others when we choose his fast. Second, we see that our weakness will be made into strength. Look again at verse eight. Your healing shall spring up speedily, it says. In verse 11, the Lord will make your bones strong. So the promise here is that God will work his strength in and through us so that we can stand strong for him. Third, I know we're moving through these quickly, but I want you to see them, highlight them, write them down. Third, we see that God will surround us with his glory, starting in verse 8 and continuing into verse 9. Look what it says. The glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. I love that verse. I love the simplicity of it. It's like when your kid calls for you, dad, here I am. I mean, you can just stay in your chair and be like, I'm right here. How much better is it to just see them and say, here I am, Ben, here I am. That's what we're seeing from God here you'll call and I will say, "Here I. And okay, I promise no sub-sermons on this. Rather, God is not deaf to our calls for help. That's the point here. He surrounds us with his love and his protection and by his spirit, he comes to our aid in our time of need. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's our refuge and strength. He's our sure and steady anchor in the midst of the storm. Number four, we see that God will guide us continually. Verse 11 says, and the Lord will guide you continually. It's pretty clear. He will guide you continually. Your GPS, if it's anything like mine, will let you down sometimes while guiding you to a destination. You might take a weird path. Uh, Being a source of frustration it becomes rather than a source of help. But God, even though you might become frustrated with his paths, he will always lead you to the right place. He will always lead you to exactly where he wants you to be. He knows true north because he is true north. You will never get lost by serving him, by serving others. Fifth, we see that God will satisfy our soul. He will satisfy our soul. Verse 11 says he will satisfy our desire in scorched places. You see, if we follow his fast, we will be like that tree that tree whose roots run deep into the ground, maybe even to the water source, and though we could be planted in all kinds of wilderness, all types of desert, will never cease to be nourished by the living water that he provides. Number six, we see that God will make us a watered garden. Look at verse 11, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters Do not fail. You see, even when we pour ourselves out to the point of emptiness for others, God will never cease to fill us back up with his abundant provision. He'll always fill us. And as he does so, we'll be able to continue our service to him. And as we grow in grace, we'll realize it's not because I did this. Yet not I, but Christ through me. All right, seven We see that God uses us as agents of restoration. Verse 12 makes this very clear. I like how pastor and author Ray Ortland illustrates this. He reminds us that Jesus is building his church and I quote now, he says, he longs for his church to serve as the model home for the new neighborhood that he's promising to build. He wants everyone to be able to look at the church And see a glimpse of the future. He wants them to see the kingdom so that they can buy in. You see, when God uses us to pick up the pieces of a a broken world and begin to repair and restore them into something beautiful, others are gonna see it and they're gonna long to be there too. You see, God's fast is sacrificial, but it's also attractional. Not because of us because it points people to Jesus and shows them the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Christ. Friends, these are God's gracious promises. They're not mine, they're God's. They're here in his word and they accompany his sacrificial call to serve him by serving others. My hope is that you find comfort in those promises. I hope that you spend the week thinking about them, meditating on them, searching for them in other places of scripture. And my deepest hope is that you would even embrace them with all your heart. So I'd like to close, bring us to an end with a question. Will you choose God's fast? Will you choose God's fast? Will you be the soldier who is not only devoted to your king, but who is devoted to sacrificing for your king? Devoted to pouring yourself out for others as you serve them for God's glory and they're good because there's opportunities everywhere. Opportunities abound. Outside these walls, outside the walls of your home, for those in their cars, outside the doors of your vehicle, there are people enslaved to all kinds of wickedness, yoked to all forms of worldly pleasure. Will you work to set them free? Outside, Maybe even inside? Those who are hungry, homeless, perhaps even naked without clothing, would you serve them? Would you answer the call to serve by feeding them, helping them find shelter, giving them clothing, meeting the need? Those are great questions. Questions I've wrestled with all week. But they're questions that have to be rooted in this. So hear this: Think of all that your Savior Jesus has done for you. Think of all that Jesus has done. He left the glories of heaven. He humbled himself by being born in the likeness of men. He suffered for you. He died for you, and he rose again for you, so that you could be set free so that you would be set free from your bondage to sin and death. You are free in Christ. And even as he reigns over all of us, over you in heaven, he never ceases to feed you with his living bread. He never ceases to shelter you under his wing. And he never ceases to clothe you with his righteousness. Think of all that Jesus has done for you, and in his strength, and by his grace, I'm going to invite you, take up your cross, follow him, serve, don't seek to be served, but like him, serve for his glory, and the good of the church, and for the growth of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Amen, and amen. Would you turn with me in your bulletins?